Good evening and welcome everybody. I'd like to begin by saying that we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. And on behalf of the university, pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present, whose songlines connect us from ancient times right through to the future. My name is Marnie Hughes-Warrington. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at ANU. Some people ask me, what does a Deputy Vice-Chancellor at ANU do? Everything from student discipline, to the lecterns breaking down, to having a magical phone call just over a year ago with Brian and Paul Francis, and this guy called Anant Agarwal on the other end of the phone, saying, why don't we do this? Why don't we try this? It was about a year ago that ANU indicated that it wanted to join the world of online learning as it had been doing for quite a while, and partnering with Harvard and MIT and all of our edX partners to take education to a new level for this university. edX has three million students. Yeah, we will be offering our first three MOOCs starting in three weeks' time, Astrophysics 1 and 2 and Engaging India. At the moment, our enrolments are just under 15,000 students and we have not advertised them. They come from 88 countries around the world. Numbers like this are fascinating and frightening and indicate that there's a revolution happening in education. Our goal is, within three weeks, to exceed the number of students in edX that are currently on the campus of this university. And our goal, by the end of the year, is to have more ANUX students than we've ever had alumni of this university. Numbers like this tell us that this is something new and interesting. Is it just a bigger scale of what we've been doing before? Is it a really frightening future? Is it a fascinating future? Well, at the end of the day, we don't really know. But we're very lucky today to be joined by the president of edX, Professor Anant Agarwal. Anant taught the first edX course on circuits and electronics from MIT, in which he said this morning that he expected to get about 1,000 people to enrol, but was a bit surprised when 155,000 people turned up to do it. 162,000 countries. Imagine being in a meeting, proposing that idea to your university. I want to do this thing. I'm not sure how many people I'll get. I'm going to put it out there. It's extraordinary testimony both to Anant and to MIT that they took that journey and that Harvard joined shortly and that the rest of us have joined too. But he's the person to back because this is his fifth startup and this is his first not-for-profit startup having co-founded several companies, including Tolera Corporation, which created the Tile Multicore Processor and Virtual Machine Works. Joining us this evening as well is our own Brian Schmidt, who was instrumental in encouraging the ANU MOOC experiment. When we had that phone call with Anand, I remember him saying, yes, we know very much about ANU. What is it that you think you can do to begin with? And I said, well, what if a Nobel laureate wanted to teach I think we got in at that point, don't you think, Brian? I think it sold it. He's had bestowed upon him every possible award and distinction for his work, work that's revolutionised our understanding of the origin of the fate of the universe. And along with his colleague, Dr Paul Francis, who I notice is not wearing his waistcoat this evening, he's developed our astrophysics MOOCs, The Greatest Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe, and then coming shortly after that, Exoplanets. Moderating the conversation tonight is Julie Hare, and welcome back on campus, Julie. Julie is the editor of the Higher Education section of The Australian. She spent 15 years specialising as an education journalist 
Uh, she's an arts graduate from the University of Newcastle and has won numerous awards, including one last year from the Association of Victorian Educators for her contribution to really what is quite important investigative journalism around education. Before I hand over to Julie, I'd like to show you two short videos previewing our ANUX courses, The Greatest Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe and Engaging India. And if at the end of the videos you think I'd like to give that a go, I invite you to sign up at our ANUX page. Just type ANUX into any search engine and you'll find it. The great thing about these courses is that you can take them for free if you want to. And if you decide, you can decide how much you want to do. But I think once you've seen Paul and Brian there, you won't want to let it go. If you've got Twitter there at the moment, feel free to hashtag ANU and keep the Twitter conversation going. It's been very lively today. Thank you all for coming along this evening and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Brian. And I'm Paul, and we're both astronomers here at the Australian National University. In 1998, I was part of a team that made the discovery that the expansion rate of the universe was accelerating. Our discovery implies that 70% of the universe is some mysterious substance which we call dark energy. So until Brian made that discovery, we really had no idea what 70% of the universe is made out of. Yeah, and even to this day, we still really have no idea what this dark energy is. And to be quite frank, we're not that hot on the other 30% of the universe either. Most of the rest of the universe is something called dark matter. What is dark matter? It's dark, can't see it, and it weighs a lot. And that's really all we know about it. Less than 5% of the universe is made up of the atoms that we study here on Earth. There's a lot we don't understand about the universe. Such as why the universe exists at all. I mean, why did the Big Bang happen? Who pressed the big red button? And how did the stars and galaxies form right after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago? How did black holes get to be so enormously massive? And what are gamma ray bursts? And how did planets form? We don't even know that. In this course, we're going to explore nine of the great unsolved mysteries in astronomy. We're going to go from the Big Bang all the way to the solar system. We can't promise you any answers because no one on Earth knows the answers. The best we can hope for is a more refined form of ignorance. This is the first of four courses that make up the Australian National University's first-year astrophysics program. It's followed by a course on exoplanets, a course on the violet universe, and a course on cosmology. To do any of these courses, we'd expect you to have a fairly good level of high school maths and physics background. The universe is a beautiful but mysterious place and we look forward to sharing our ignorance of it with you. Culture. Himalayas. Taj Mahal. Curry. Tropical. Bright colours. Diversity. Mystery. What makes India, India? A country steeped in a rich cultural heritage. How is India finding a balance between maintaining its historical sense of identity and in building its identity as a major player on the world stage? Welcome to Engaging India. This 10-week course taught by leading experts from the Australian National University is designed to look at the complexity of the study of India from multiple perspectives. Together, we'll be looking at Indian cultures, histories, languages, politics, and economics and asking, how do these elements help us understand India? And how do we benefit from this understanding? We will look to the past. India carries a tremendous abundance and diversity of traditions. 
By gaining a sense of these diverse cultures and histories, we can begin to glimpse where India has come from and what makes it the country it is today. We will look at the present, at India's media, cultures and languages, and the hustle and bustle of everyday life, and explore how India's diversity contributes to the dynamism that makes up modern India. India has emerged as a global powerhouse in adopting technology today. And it's this enthusiasm for innovation and embrace of technology that's also driving change in Indian culture. By studying this cultural shift, we can also better understand how India would like to see itself and position itself globally in the future. This course is innovative, exciting, varied and engaging. You'll have lots of opportunities to interact with our expert scholars and with each other. So come on, join us to explore Engaging India. about you, but after watching those, I think I want to enrol in both of them, so uh, that'll make 15,001 enrolments. Um, before we start talking about education in an online world, I thought it might be interesting to start exploring what happens when this explosion of online education, what happens to the traditional lecture theatre where someone like me or Brian or Anant stands in front of a, a 300 people and delivers knowledge. So what is going to happen to the traditional lecture, Anant, from your perspective? You know, the way I look at it, uh, first of all, you know, what are we doing with the, uh, with the lecture? So lecture is where you come to class and you spend 50 minutes uh, listening to uh, uh, a professor. And uh, we had a discussion this morning. And uh, Cam, I think he's, he's the student president. And he said something about... Uh, this person stand there, stands and he drones on and on for 55 minutes. And so uh, it's his words, not my words. And, and if this is what, uh, how students feel, I think we should listen to our customers and do something different and engage them, engage them differently through uh, multimedia, you know, online technology, and so on, so that maybe we can blend the classroom where learners and students can watch videos at their own time. They can have interactive exercises in their own dorm rooms and hostels. And, and when they come to class, they can interact with the professor in very creative ways, you know, through discussions. So the professor can explain some hard-to-understand concepts. Students can work with each other. There's numerous ways in which we can change the, uh, the classroom. And then to the question, what happens to the lecture hall? You know, I really think that every university needs at least one lecture hall in the future. One. How else, how else would we one? How else would we tell our grandchildren, you know, your grand, grandparents used to come here and sit in neat little rows here. And they'll say, wow, really? You all came and sat down here in rows and one person sat, sat there and droned on and on? I think the future will be totally different. So um, you mentioned blended learning. Could you, I, we keep coming across the phrase flipped, the flipped classroom. Could you explain to me the difference or the similarities or whether it's the same concept between those two ideas? Sure. So blended learning is a broader concept and, flipped, and the flipped classroom is one example of blended learning. So blended learning simply says that uh, in universities and schools, you combine online with in-person. So you can combine these in, in many, many ways. So that's blended learning. You blend online with in-person. The flipped classroom is one way of doing it, where today you listen to the professor in class, 
And then you do your homeworks and exercises in your dorm rooms. The flipped classroom is one where you flip it, where you watch brief videos, you know, like, you know, like YouTube videos, you know, five, seven, eight minute videos, and maybe even do some interaction with the, you know, with the computer and so on. And then you come to class, and, and in class, there's no lectures anymore, but you do problem solving, working with your fellow students, asking questions of the professor. So you kind of flipped how it works, and that's the flipped classroom. Okay. Brian, I know um, talking to you earlier that one of the things you're really interested in exploring is how teaching online can actually improve your teaching, face-to-face -face teaching. Could you explain to um, the audience how, that, how you're sort of seeing that work? Sure. I mean, it, it really ends up being a new tool. And so to the, the question about the lecture, I, I think there will be some form of it. I just don't know what it's going to be. And we have this new platform by which we can teach better. So, you know, my, my perspective is how can all the people I'm trying to teach get something more out of it? So the idea of spending time getting that droning out of the classroom where you break it into five-minute chunks as we're learning uh, is important because, you know, at 11.06 in my 11 a.m. class, everyone's gone to sleep, it turns out. I just haven't I'm realized sure it's it not true. Um, <laughs> And so, Which are lucky they show up to class. In, 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 my, in, in my classes towards the latter half of the semester, you know, you're lucky if at MIT in many classes, 25 to 30% even show up to class. So. Oh, okay. So, the, uh, so you, have, you want to get rid of the stuff that's not working very well and, and replace it uh, in this, uh, you know, this platform that allows you to combine lectures and homework and you know, thought-provoking things and ability to communicate get that out of the classroom and then do what I'm really good at answering, which are open-ended questions. Now, that's not going to be so easy for this platform to tackle. Mm. But in classroom, I want to do the things that really require person-to-person -person activity or require something you can't really think of in advance. And so from my perspective, yeah, it really is some aspect of flipping the classroom or blending the learning where you get that stuff that you don't have to be here in a, um, all in seats there listening to me with no feedback. Mm. Rather, get that stuff out and then the individual stuff in the classroom back. And for you know, really large 300-person classes, maybe that those disappear. The 300-person lecture may not make sense anymore in the future because 300 people, well, you can use clickers and things to get some interaction there. Mm. But you can do that online as well. So it's not clear to me that that's going to have a future, except for as entertainment. Okay, and now, um, we haven't used the word MOOC yet. It's one of the world's ugliest acronyms, I do believe. But it's, you know, it's in co common usage now. Perhaps just for the sake of, before we go any further, you explain what a MOOC actually is. Sure. Um, so MOOC is a four-letter word. Uh, begins with an M. It stands for Massive Open Online Course. And so these are these uh, courses created by universities like uh, AINU, um, like the course, uh, The Mysteries of the Universe, and so on, where you can sign up for the course. The course is massive because uh, uh, Brian's and uh, Paul's course have about uh, uh, 10, 15,000 students signed up from all over the world, so it's massive. It's open in that you don't have, just imagine, you don't have to go through an admissions exam to get admission into a university. Anybody can take it. It completely, it completely inverts the model. Just imagine, anybody can take a course from some of the world's best professors. Just imagine that. So it's open. There's no admissions exam. 
And you know what? Another four-letter word that begins with an F? Free. <laughs> it's open. It's free. And anybody can sign up for a course. And then it's online because, you know, if you have a computer and internet connection, you can take it online. And it's a course. So that's a MOOC. So one of the things that we hear about MOOCs is that while there are massive numbers of people enrolling in them, we also know that there's only about 7% retention rate. Um, is this a problem? So uh, let's look at you know, what, what the retention rate means. So uh, you have a lot of students sign up for a course. And, uh, you know, and these courses are taught by professors who teach similar courses on campus. These are rigorous courses. The course that I taught was a course on circuits and electronics. Um, how many of you here are uh, electrical engineers? See, I, that makes my point. The rest, the rest of them all, there's one. The rest of them all working hard, you know, with differential equations and so on. They don't have time to come to this. So, so this was a really hard course with differential equations as prerequisites and so on. 155,000 students signed up to uh, take the course. And 7,200, about 5 to 6% passed the course. So by one measure, the retention rate was uh, 5 to 6%. And doesn't look great. So if you were a university, you would not survive if five to six percent passed the course. But you're comparing apples and oranges in, 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 in that this is an open course. Open means that anybody can take it, whether you have the background or not. You know, we have uh, eleven-year-olds taking courses all the way to eighty-eight-year-olds. So it's, you know, all people in all walks of life trying things out, experimenting. Some people get a little bit out of it. Some people get a lot out of it. If you come to university, at, at, this is an MIT course. At MIT, MIT admits between 5 and 10% of students that apply. So MIT admits, I forget, 7 or 8% of students that apply. So it's not surprising then that for an open course, about uh, you know, 6% of students are able to pass the course. And these are students that have no skin in the game, so to speak. They're not paying $40,000 in tuition. And what we are also finding is that uh, we have a verified certificate option where people pay a small fee to get a verified certificate where the ID is checked. And when they pay a small fee, even $25, we find that the retention rate shoots up to 60%. So, uh, so I think we can tweak the retention rate, and I, so I, I, don't, I don't set great store by the retention rate. Okay. So, Brian, you're obviously a bit of a rock star academic uh, researcher. You know, when a lot of people know about you, you've got a Nobel laureate, does it worry you that of those 10,000, 20,000, you know, up to 100,000 people that enroll in your course, that a, lot of, a lot of them could be described as, you know, maybe astrophysics tourists or, um, you know, that it's the cult of the celebrity professor that's attracting them, that they're not really serious about your course, that they're kind of academic voyeurs, or are you just happy to share with whoever turns up? I'm happy. So... You the beautiful thing is because they're open, you know, and I'm, what people are going to get out of a MOOC is defined by them. I'm just giving the best I can. So the fact that some people may just want to watch the videos and stare at Paul's beautiful eyes as opposed to uh, someone else's uh, and waistcoat, yes, that's fine. Uh, I have no expectations of them, nor should I. Mm. I want to let people go through see what I have to offer, and get as much out of it as they can, and I'm, I'm okay with that. So, no, I have no problem with whatever people want to get out of it. So what do you want them to take away from it? I would like some people to learn the basics of astrophysics, the basics of physics and some math in a setting which hopefully is engaging and enjoyable to them. 
I would like some people to use that as a basis to improve their prospects of getting further education. And I would like some people just to sort of get a basic idea and not even try to do the problem sets and just get a sense of what we do. And other people can look at the pictures, whatever floats their boat, ultimately. But this is the extraordinary thing, isn't it? That the, anybody, any normal person, anybody in this room, anybody from Blacktown and Sydney, anyone from China or Rwanda or anyone else can sign up for any course, whether it's in philosophy or computer science or astrophysics. It's, it's this great leveller, isn't it? That it brings the massive world almost a bit closer and that we can, it's, there's a creativity to it and an egalitarianism to it. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I, I, call it the, uh, I call MOOCs the uh, ultimate uh, democratizer. Hmm. And in terms of uh, uh, diversity and breadth of uh, uh, the kind of things people want to do, I'll give you an example. I was talking to uh, uh, the student, uh, Baha, from uh, University of Texas, Austin, and they're also an edX partner. So uh, I was chatting with him last week. And uh, so he's a student in the UT Austin uh, campus. And, and if you look at, he's a typical student. And in our current system, uh, all our students are really used to be going through a stovepipe stove pipe experience. If you're an electrical engineer, you take mostly electrical engineering courses. And, and that's how we, we were all brought up. You get a degree in electrical engineering. However, if you look at the world today, uh, the millennial generation, they're much, much broader. And what we are finding is that uh, they have a very different perspective. I mean, they, want, they, they care about world issues. You know, they care about philanthropy. They care about languages. They care about culture, they care about electrical engineering. You know, they, it, it's a much wider class of subjects that people care about today. And the world is becoming a much, much more interactive, global, social, interactive, uh, multidisciplinary world. But the university systems haven't changed. It's still stovepipe. And so what Baha said was what he'd like to do was, of course, he was uh, doing media studies and, and learning about media studies. But at the same time, he was taking all these other courses which, which he, uh, in some cases, he just wanted to get a nodding acquaintance with the course. In other cases, he wanted a certificate. So you know, he could engage with a number of other subjects. And he said, uh, as a student in a university, I would never have had the chance to learn about all these other things and broaden my horizons. OK. Um, uh, the naysayers, there are people sort of fall into two camps on MOOCs, the people who absolutely love them and think they're the absolute transformation of, of education, which is, I think, your camp. Um, and there are others who say it's going to be the end of the traditional university. It's the end of ANU. What, what was your response to that? So my response uh, to that is that uh, there's online learning and there's campus. I think the two are very different. They're different products. And it's like saying, you know, when, when apples were invented, oh, my God, these will put mangoes out of business. I mean, <laughs> you know, but it, it's, it's two different, you know, just two different things. And uh, the campus experience is very, very different. Yeah, there are a number of things that uh, the rite of passage, you know, you... You have discussions with other students. You learn how to interact with each other. You learn how to, you know, you're growing up. You, know, you are working with professors and doing research. And you're you know, getting inspired by professors and by other students and working together. So all of these things, some parts of it can happen online, but it's a very different experience. So I don't see online learning as uh, replacing the campus. I see online learning as improving campus, which is why I like to say that it's, online learning is like a rising tide that will lift all boats, will provide access to students that don't have access to education. And if you're on a campus, hopefully it will engage you better. And, uh, you know, with online learning, um, give you a much better experience uh, when you had a good experience to begin with on campus. 
So, Brian, we, we heard from the federal government and from our education minister, um, Christopher Pine, as well as the prime minister. They, there seems to be an intimation that they're very, very interested in online learning and perhaps utilising MOOCs in some way as a way of perhaps offsetting the cost to government of educating large numbers of people. Is that a true interpretation? And what would you say to the government about such notions? Well, I can't speak for the government, and, uh, but I could say that uh, I, I don't think MOOCs are going to make education necessarily cheaper. What they are going to do, if done correctly, is make education better. So let's take a university that right now provides, quite frankly, a low standard of education. I don't think they're going to survive. They're going to either lift their game on the campus experience or be overtaken. So some universities may well, you know, run, you know, uh, be the dodo bird uh, if they don't adapt. But places like the ANU, we're going to use it, and you're still going to have me and trying to teach and do more, and maybe even have more personal time. And creating a MOOC is a non-trivial experience. They're not easy. They're not something that you can do just you know, instantly uh, relative to a class. So they have expenses associated with them, and as the campus experience, we want to make everyone get something better, which is, I think, uh, there's no evidence to me that uh, our students of Australia are over-educated. They're getting too good of an education. I, I would say quite the contrary. So I think this is a, a way, again, to float the boats, raise, raise the, the level, and you might be able to do it more efficiently. You might not. But I don't, it's not obvious it's going to be cheaper. But I think it will be better. Because the, the, one of the key elements of a good MOOC that we know so far, and perhaps you can fill in on that, is one, they're not cheap to um, produce, are they? I understand $100,000 will produce you know, one MOOC that will go for about nine, nine weeks. Yeah, that's, so that's a big investment from a university when no one's paying for it. Right, and that does not include the professor's time, I promise yeah. you. Because you know, normally when you get up and give a lecture, you don't have every word rehearsed if you make a little mistake. So, oh, sorry about that. But when you're filming, of course, you, you don't tend to just leave great big pauses and mistakes. You refilm. And filming takes, you know, three to one compared to just doing it live. Then you have to set up the equations that you're going to test on the online setting. And because you're breaking things down into nice little digestible things, you're thinking a lot more about how you teach. Mm. That all takes time. And from my experience, it takes a lot of time, but you end up with a much better product out of it. Because the writing process of the writing those nine-week courses and, and is very different from the way you deliver a lecture. So you, you've completely had to sort of dismantle you, those. It, it's like you delivering a lecture, and then you do refinement, 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 refinement. So it, 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 has, it starts with the same, but then you just give out and give it your lecture. And in this case, you put it on, and you're like, God, I can do that better, and I can fix this, and I can add that. And I really need to think about what I'm doing in this case, because you're not doing it live, because as soon as you do something, say, well, I, I could do better, you do better. Mm. There's one other important point, though, which is that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the upfront cost, you know, whether it's uh, $50,000 or $100,000 or more, that's an investment. So that's the first time you create the course. But after you create it once, then you offer it again and again. And you may tweak it in various ways and improve it. But the second time around, so uh, the course that I taught, for example, that course has now been offered uh, through edX by MITx four times. And I promise you, the first time uh, when I, my colleagues and I created the course and taught it, 
we have deep scars on our back from you know, how hard we worked and, and, and thought and rethought and uh, tried to get a really good product. But the second time around, I promise you, it's like falling off a log. Now, I've been teaching at MIT for uh, 26 years, and even today, when I have to go into a lecture, uh, you know, I've got to psych myself up. It's, you know, with, with 100 students sitting there, and you know, it's, it's, it's a scary experience, and you've got to practice, and, and each time you deliver a, a live lecture, which it's a, let's say a one-hour lecture, I must spend many, many hours preparing and you know, uh, uh, thinking about various things, tweaking it, so it's, it's, a, it's a three to one, four to one, five, six to one ratio. Yeah. But, but once you've done the recordings and so on, a lot of it can be reused. And so the second time around, and, and, and a third or fourth or fifth, is much more inexpensive, and you can focus on the value add with the student experience. Okay, um, so you've delivered it four times, so what's the total number of students who've actually done that course? Um, so enroll, I, enrolled? In, in, in 6002X, that's the circuit in electronics. I actually don't know. I think it may be, uh, it may be uh, quarter of a million uh, or more. It's extraordinary. Could you, you told a story earlier about a student from Mongolia. Could you perhaps share that with the audience? Because I think it's very in, insightful. Sure. Um, the, the, the MOOCs are this amazing experiment, and, and uh, you know, all kinds of new things are coming out of it. Um, and uh, they're just incredible, incredible stories um, of, of human beings that, whose lives are being touched in, in many, many different ways. Um, so there's one story of uh, uh, the student, uh, Bartushig. So uh, Bartushig is, uh, he was a 15-year-old when he took the first MOOC on edX uh, from Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. He was a 15-year-old in Sant High School. And, and this kid is a genius. So takes his edX circuits course. It's a hard, hard MIT sophomore second, third year course in electrical engineering and computer science. And this guy knocks off 100. I mean, he gets 100% in this course. He's one of 300 students worldwide out of 150,000 who gets 100. Incredible. And, uh, and, and then the student begins applying the knowledge of what he learned in the course, and he's building devices and so on in, uh, in Mongolia. And then he applies to MIT, and he gets into MIT, and now he's a uh, freshman at MIT. So you know, people's lives are being changed, where they're, where they're using this as a credential uh, to, to get a better life, to, to get a you know, better education. Many students who've, uh, another learner who took the Berkeley software as a service course, uh, he had a job, he was in uh, New York, and uh, he just put his certificate, posted his certificate on LinkedIn. Next day, he got a call from a company in New York, said, hey, you know, we have an opening, uh, uh, come and interview. He got a job, and now he's working at the other company. So, so whether it's jobs, whether it's uh, education, um, you know, people around the world are finding different ways in which uh, this can enrich their lives. Mm. Um, I met um, Daphne Collar, who's the head of another MOOC called um, Coursera uh, last year, and she told the story of a, a boy with severe autism um, who had a total verbal language of 125 words. I think he was 16 or 17 at the stage, and he en enrolled in a course in um, poetry at Princeton, and it was just absolutely, he topped the course. It's, as she said, you know, it was a really hard course for kids going to Princeton. This kid had a, basically a special ed education, which, as she said, was enough if you sat there quietly and didn't muck up. That was good. And this kid described it as the first meaningful educational experience he'd had his entire life. And then, of course, just went from there. And is now his entire education is involved in MOOC. So I think that's one of the things that it's actually can be incredibly life-changing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and there's so many stories of students that well, what we've done at edX is that, uh, you know, if you come visit edX, we have a wall 
where we uh, where we post learner stories and 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 as all of us walk in and out, you know, we look at that and says, uh, you know, this gives meaning to life. I mean, this is incredible. Mm. This is one of the important things about MOOCs when we're coming back to that great democratisation, but you know, vast numbers of people in places like Africa are actually using MOOCs to get white-collar jobs. They're actually using MOOCs to change their lives, aren't they? Yes. So, so about, uh, about 10% of our learners uh, are from Africa. And uh, uh, again, you know, I could sit here telling you stories about each of our learners uh, all day long. In fact, we uh, on Tumblr, we ask our learners to write the stories on Tumblr. So another, stu another student called uh, Claude from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, a family of 14, uh, he goes to uh, University of Cape Town to get a computer science degree. His, his father dies in his first year. He can't pay his fees anymore, so he quit school and been working uh, for 10 years in, uh, in Cape Town. And now he discovered books and, and he's taking uh, in, uh, computer science courses and he wants to get, get a job uh, using computer science now. So uh, when the, the stories abound. Okay, so w one of the things, that, another thing that keeps coming about MOOCs is the need, a lot of people don't see the point of them unless universities can actually make money out of them. Now edX is a not-for-profit and um, you have said that categorically, while it needs to be self-sustaining, you're not interested in, in money making. Would, would the money make, would the profit motive undermine what MOOCs are meant to be, the, the basic principles underlying them? Well, it's not for me to say, uh, you know, whether it'll undermine MOOCs. Uh, just that we felt that uh, making edX non-profit was, was very important. Um, education is an absolute, it's a basic human right. We really believe that uh, everybody should have a, uh, you know, access to it, like the air we breathe. All of our universities are basically non-profit, uh, either government-funded or in the U.S. whether you're private or, or a public university, they're all non-profits. There are very few uh, for-profits. And so when we're doing something that is so fundamental, and even when we started edX, you know, we knew this was going to be very revolutionary. And so it, we felt it very important that uh, it be non-profit. So when you have something this revolutionary, by making it non-profit, you allow yourself to be guided by principle, not you know, what will maximize ROI, return on investment, for VCs, where you know, I've done five startup companies, and uh, a number of times, you know, after the second year or third year or fourth year, you, know, you, get, a, you get a billion dollar offer, but how do you turn it down? If investors are going to make a return of 20x on their money, you can't turn it down. It's a fiduciary responsibility to accept it. Mm -hmm. And then you've lost control. And then, you know, who knows where it's going to go. But with edX, by, by making it nonprofit, we can't be bought because we're free. So people say, look, you know, can I get this? No, we, we give things away. So we, we gave away our platform. We, make it, we made it open source. And so anybody can take our platform. Um, we're the only MOOC provider that's open sourced our platform. And the reason is that the moment you open source your platform, uh, your value goes, it plummets. Because now you've, you've created a competition for yourself. So today, anybody can take the, our, our crown jewels, our platform, and set up a competitor to edX. So if a group consortium of universities in Australia decided, oh, let's create a competitor to edX, you can go do that. We'll give you the software. So that's not a good business practice. Mm. And so, um, so you, but, but that, again, is an is a indication where it, it, it's, a, it's a principled move. We felt it's the right thing to do so that anybody can get access to the platform. 
And so, so we felt that being non-profit was very critical. Does it make a different, difference to you, Brian, that, that it's a not-for-profit? Uh, absolutely essential to me. To me, I was only interested in edX precisely for that reason. I want to be able to have the ability to contribute to it, but I also want to have control of it. And ultimately, every university I've ever been associated with is for public good. It's not for turning a profit. They pretty much all take donations. It means they're all nonprofit organizations. So I think when you suddenly are in this new disruptive technology, which might undermine your business, mm -hmm. and they are for profit, that's a little ugly. I'm not sure if I want to be part of that. But when we're involved with something which is all about bringing education uh, and knowledge out to the world, and it's not for profit, so you get to control how to do that as best you can, that's a model I'm very comfortable with. And I personally think will uh, be the model that uh, ends up working, because how are you going to compete against an open source platform if you're closed. I think those people are going to have a real challenge unless they provide something that's just vastly superior uh, to what we're providing. And of course, we're out there trying to provide the best possible quality. And in my opinion, I think the edX courses are at the highest standard uh, in the business right now. Okay, thank you. On that note, I think we might um, put out to questions. I, uh, there's a uh, microphone set up on either side of the room. So if you have a question, if you'd like to go down to the microphones and maybe line up. Yep. Don't be shy. <laughs> Hi. My question is, how will MOOCs impact the campus experience? As a student, university means more than sitting in a lecture theatre listening to a lecturer droning on. It means being able to be part of a community where I can engage with students and staff with similar ideas. It's about building connections with people and engaging in challenging discussions which further the ideas that I form in the classroom. This experience seems fundamentally different to sitting at home behind a computer screen. I think we agree with you completely. And so I'm going to give you two sides to the story. First of all, I think what we're saying is, is that what we want you to do is instead of listening to us drone as a lecturer, where you don't get any of that stuff you just talked about in my class, I'd like you to do that droning stuff offline behind a computer so that when you come to class, you do get to interact with me and the other students as best as possible. And of course, as we've all been talking about, we think this is going to be an add-on to make the campus experience even richer, so you still be hopefully living on campus and getting all those other things that you get today. But let's also take the person who isn't coming to the AMU, who's from Rwanda. They don't get anything. The alternative for them is nothing. One of the big things in the developing or the third world low-income countries is the lack of being able to use the human capital. That is, they're not educated. And how do you build a country without an education system? You build an education system. But they don't have the money to do that. And they may be under, you know, have war and all sorts of other problems that makes it very difficult. This provides for them something that's not as good as what you're going to get at the ANU, but much better than what they get now, that will then allow those countries to develop to the point where they can start their own universities and have that really high quality uh, service. So, Again, I'm looking at for something where everyone gets something better than they have now. 
and that human interaction is still core and actually becomes more of a focus of the education rather than less. Do you want to add to that? I, I think uh, uh, Brian, said it, uh, Brian said it very well, which is that there are certain aspects of campus that are, that are really, really important. And uh, Raphael Reif, who's the president of MIT, I think put it uh, very well, which is that as universities and university leaders, uh, he said, uh, we really have to think hard about what is our value add. So today, if you look at a campus today, we do everything. At campus, we do admissions, we do healthcare, we do mental health counseling, we do admissions, we do uh, teaching, we do research, we do career guidance, you know, we do housing, we do food service. You know. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And this reminds me uh, of the 60s and 70s in the US when you had uh, when you had uh, uh, AT&T did everything. I mean, they, they sold you this really ugly little pink telephone and that looked that way for like 30 years. And they, they, had, they owned the whole telecom system. They, they did all the billing. They did everything. And then in the, in the early 80s, uh, they, they uh, unbundled. So unbundling happened where the telephone manufacturers you know, became Samsung or Motorola or somebody else. And you had all these revolution in phones. Uh, content became provided by others. Uh, the services became provided by uh, yet another group of people. And so the unbundling happened. And, and different people decided, what is their core value add? And I believe uh, that uh, there will be unbundling in the university system as well, whereas universities, we will think hard about what is our core value add. And I think improving the student experience, uh, you know, getting students to engage with each other, I think will be a key component of that value add. And what we will do is disinvest in other things that are better done by other means. So for example, you know, uh, lecturing and so on and you know, getting the content might be better done through online means. Uh, maybe uh, uh, you know, divest out of uh, maybe credentialing. It, it could be that, again, I'm dreaming here, it could be that some universities might decide that uh, the competency testing will be a separate exam created by some other agency. Well, they're going to focus on basic learning, just the students learn. And the students can go and take different exams at various places to get different credentials. So, so I mean, who knows what the world is going to look like in the future? But I think all of us will need to think really hard about what is our core competence? What is our core value add? What do we double down on? And what are the things that we decide that, look, this is really not something that uh, we should be doing? Thank you. Question? I just wanted to know uh, what policies are in place in regarding authenticity and knowing who is actually on the other side of the computer? Good question. Sure. Um, so one part of uh, MOOCs and education and so on is, uh, uh, unfortunately, I call that uh, the, the unfortunate part of our business, which is uh, we'd love to be pure and nice and teach everybody good stuff. But at the end of the day, there's a credential uh, that students can get, and the credential has value. And uh, uh, so one of the things we do on edX is uh, students can take courses uh, as an, uh, on the audit track, uh, which is free. They can also sign up for an honor code certificate, where they sign an honor code saying that you know, it's all their own work, it's also free. Or they can sign up for a verified track for which there's a small fee. In the verified track, they get a verified certificate where we uh, authenticate uh, the learner. So when, a, when, you, when you sign up for the course, we use webcam technology to take a picture of the student, their face, and then we also take, they show their ID and we take a picture of the ID. And then those are compared in the background and we confirm that the name and the face match. 
So the ID matches your face and the name matches, and that authenticates the student. And we do that before a major exam as well. So then when they get the certificate, you know, we have verified that it is who they say they are at the other end of the, uh, uh, of the line or the, or, the, or, the, or the wire or whatever. And uh, when they get the certificate, we also have a digital signature on the certificate so that any employer can check. So every certificate has a code, a UUID, a universal UID. And so it's a, I think it's a 128-bit uh, string. Uh, it's, it's a character string. So any employer, so as a student, you can give that string to any employer, and the employer can type that string into the computer, and edX maintains the record of the uh, certificate, and so uh, it's authentic. So you cannot fake it, because that string uh, can be entered by the employer, and they'll see the same certificate. So we do a few of these things to, uh, to, uh, to uh, validate the authenticity of the student and the certificate. And I think you can expect this to get more sophisticated over, over time. time. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It'll be evolving uh, as one of the key technologies. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so I have a question about the, the value adding process that you discussed. You noted that the first time you gave uh, an edX course, it was an extraordinary amount of setup work. And uh, uh, I've been talking to Paul and Brian, they've had the same experience. And I'm currently two weeks into an experiment of flipping my classroom. So I've, I've, I'm using Edge, and I've, you know, I spent since October putting my entire course on. So I know that, that setup course. And I'm personally very excited about the value-add process. So I, I totally buy everything that, that's been set on stage so far, um, in that we are now, in my course, providing a very different face-to-face -face experience. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And what's been sort of uh, tickling in the back of my mind since I knew I was going to get this chance to give a question here was how, or at least what is known about what value adding you can do online. So, so it's clear that there's a lot you can get from having you know, world experts with you in the class guiding you through big complicated things and open questions and that sort of thing. What fraction of that experience and what methods do you have for reproducing that in a scalable setup? You want to start with a crack at it? Well, not, um, <coughs> you know, uh, to my mind, one of the really exciting parts about this technology is you can more easily quantify what works. So I don't actually know the answer to your question, but what I do know is that you will be able to answer the question yourself, what works in your own course, compared to the notes of what everyone's doing around the world, and adopt new technology. I already have learned that at six minutes, people get bored with my lectures. I would have guessed it's at least been a half hour before. <laughs> six minutes. As I said, it makes me wonder what happens at the end of my class when people come to it. So I think it's going to be a process of learning. And I, you have a lot more experience in the space. But I'm very excited about actually building up evidence about what works. So now it's done it for four years. So. I'm wondering if he's already got some evidence. Yeah, sure. No, I, I, think yeah. I think there's a lot of examples. And, and, and one of the things that we do, uh, this is all, all an experiment. And when you say, Anand has a lot more experience, we're talking about six months, OK? Yeah. So you know, this, the whole thing is about two, two, two years and you know, three months old. And so we're all uh, you know, juveniles here. But uh, again, second, not really answering your question, and I'll get to the answer in a second, is that uh, we have something called the X Consortium where our partners, uh, our core partners, the charter members are part of an ex-consortium 
where we also have a pedagogy uh, and learning um, subgroup of the X consortium that gets together to brainstorm and talk about what is working and what is not working. And our hope is that as instructors try, try different things, uh, we would share the lessons of what uh, has worked and what has not worked so all of us learn. And, and everyone is doing experiments. And so right now, I don't think we have uh, even a, you know, a one hundredth of the answers. Uh, but things are emerging in terms of uh, what works and what doesn't work. So I, you know, I'll throw out a few examples. So you mentioned the six-minute video. So they're um, using the big data from learning that we collect on the platform. Uh, Philip Gore did a study of student engagement versus video length, and he found six-minute videos were uh, the most engaging. Uh, other examples, um, talking to a, uh, a professor in the philosophy department at University of Texas, Austin. So he said, uh, you know, he, he, he teaches a course and, and, and in, 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 on the campus, and he taught a MOOC as well. And, and what he said was that was very interesting. He said, on campus, he ends up having to lecture for about 40 minutes. And in the end, it gives 10 minutes for, uh, for discussion. And he says, you know, just, or not, just imagine, it's a philosophy class. And in, and in, in philosophy, you're supposed to philosophize and brainstorm and discuss and shoot the breeze. And here I'm lecturing for 40, 45 minutes traditionally, and I have five minutes or 10 minutes for discussion. And he said, it's terrible. So he said, in the fall, he taught a MOOC. He's salivating over the concept of uh, flipping the classroom in the fall. And he says, you know, I, I just can't imagine it'd be so much fun. Heck, you know, maybe I'll spend five minutes, uh, you know, just covering a few things, but use 50 minutes for discussion in a philosophy class. So how much fun will that be? So you know, that's one example where, where the discussion can be a big part of the lecture and where the basic concepts and so on can be garnered online. So that's another you know, place where the on-campus part can be uh, used for uh, discussion. Another example where uh, what, we've learned, you know, what we've learned in these uh, videos and so on has been tremendous is that uh, by having videos interleaved with uh, with assessment, so where you, where you learn something and then you try something out before you go on to something else. It turns out there's a word for it in the educational science called mastery learning, where you don't go to something else unless you've uh, mastered something. So <coughs> that is very helpful to students. They watch a video, they do some, uh, uh, get some content, and then we ask them and give them a little mini exercise where, uh, where they go and test out the knowledge of what they've learned. And what's amazing is that when you watch a lecture, you think you got it, oh yeah, yeah I got it. But then when you ask a little question, no, no, you don't got it, okay? And so it's nothing like, nothing like checking and saying, you know what, I actually didn't get it. Let me go back and do it. And, and many students have told us that uh, you know, they've been going back and looking at the video six, seven times before they move on because uh, until they really get it. So that's another amazing learning part, which is by giving students a way to check themselves as to did they really get it before they go on to something else, uh, it really uh, is not, not, not just engaging, but also uh, they tend to uh, have better outcomes. Okay, thank you. Next question. Hello. <coughs> Sorry. Thanks very much. Uh, I actually, earlier today, I asked a question uh, from Professor Anand about um, the, the nature of um, edX and the ways in which it might actually transform the function of universities globally. Uh, but I guess I, I was sidetracked a little bit in my, in my question, and so consequently I didn't really get to the point in the answer that I received either. So I, want, I thought about it a little more, and I thought I would ask it again. Um, unlike this kind of hype about the MOOCs as being 
you know, this kind of revolutionary technology or revol a revolution in delivery of education, I actually think that it is an inevitable evolution or inevitable phenomenon within the knowledge-based economy that we are currently living under. And I wonder whether um, the MOOCs actually, in, instead of, you know, we're talking about them as being, uh, you know, getting a wider access to a first world-class education where you wouldn't normally have the chance to, whether we could think about them as um, uh, kind of in a longer term as restructuring or reforming, reconfiguring the function of the universities as to an information provider rather than education provider. I think there's a lot of still branding of education that goes on with the MOOCs that hasn't really changed so much from the conventional mm -hmm. lecturing experiences and conventional, you know, for example, yeah, sure, I, sure. Can, can we, um, so, so you, what you're asking is, is whether, whether uh, the, these kind of MOOCs are actually fundamentally changing the nature the, or the function of the university globally to not just an education provider that you know will be branded as a Harvard education or whatever to rather just mere information provider you know like uh, as okay. an initiator so, yep. of some sort of knowledge right. circulating yep. around the world yeah did, did you have an answer to that <clears throat> you'll try well I, I think that will be the outcome for some people and some institutions I am very confident that existing institutions will retain and fight for what I'll call their brand to make sure that ANU still continues to position itself as being, you know, the forefront university. And you have to realize that a lot more happens that, you know, we talk about ANU, what our education is here, which is it involves research. And you're not going to suddenly take research and somehow do hands-on experiments and displace it, at least not till we have a lot more sophisticated technology than we do now. So I suspect that for some people, it will be that we provide information in a way not dissimilar to a textbook that hopefully is better and is more useful, and a lot of people will get that. But I do believe the fundamental core of the university will stay there as a place for, for education, for research, for communication of ideas in person. I don't see that changing because I think the universities will do everything they can to retain their status, and I don't see other players coming in and disrupting that to the point where the elite brand of a Harvard or even the ANU will disappear, at least quickly. 100 years, who knows? But it is a very fundamental change to what universities are able to do, so it, it shouldn't be understated. But I, I think it's not going to fundamentally change the place of universities in society. That's my guess. Okay, thank you. Um, question? Uh, so I've got two quick questions, I hope. For those of us, and it seems that many people are interested in auditing the courses rather than taking them for credit. And so I'm wondering if, if there's a rationale for holding the courses at a particular time. Because those of us who want to audit might have liked to have started as soon as it became available in February or something, or take it in May, because we're not that interested in the interaction. We're just interested in seeing what the course is about. So that's the first question. One is about rationale for timing. 
And the second question is, one of the things that, I, that seems to me to be quite exciting is that if you're developing a new area where there are a limited number of people who can teach it, you can actually start to develop a global faculty and different universities can then take that information and use it to accredit the course in whatever way they, they see fit. Is that something that you've given some thought to? No. So to your first question about um, the timing of courses that, uh, and you know, I, I wouldn't make a difference between auditors versus people who want to get a verified certificate. I mean, different people want to, you know, the courses start at different times. And, uh, and there I think is, is uh, you know, if you were to compile 10 grand challenge questions of online learning, I think that is one grand challenge question, which is what I call self-paced courses versus synchronous courses. A synchronous course is one which starts at a given time, has bi-weekly or weekly or whatever deadlines. You create a cohort, and the cohort of students moves through the course. So on the discussion forums and so on, you have uh, topical discussions at any given time, um, and they all talk, are talking about the same homework, for instance. And, uh, and they're deadlines, so uh, you know, if you're like me, you know, things don't get done unless you give me a deadline. And, so, uh, and then you have a final exam. And so, so that's a synchronous course. Another extreme is a self-paced course where, look, the content is out there. You can start the course whenever you want. There are no deadlines. All the deadlines are a year later. So, uh, uh, and on edX, we have both types of courses. So for example, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Brian and Paul's course uh, on the Mysteries of the Universe is a synchronous course, which has uh, a start date and deadlines and so on. Uh, there's a course called uh, CS50X, it's Introduction to Computer Science. Uh, this is by uh, uh, Harvard X, David Malin's course. It's a self-paced course where it nominally started on uh, January 1st, and all the assignments come due exactly a year later. So all the deadlines are on a given day a year later, which means it's a self-paced course which says you can start whenever you want, you can submit the assignments whenever you want. As long as all the work is done by a certain date, you can get the credential. That's self-paced. Now, one of the grand challenge questions is which is, a, which is the right way to do it? And I don't know the answer. Okay. And, 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 and I think the challenge there is that with a synchronous course, deadlines help and cohorts help. But with a self-paced course, people can pace themselves and start when they want. So you know, there, there are trade-offs. I don't know the right answer. Uh, we're, we're running out of town, so maybe you could just quickly address the idea of the global faculty? So, uh, so uh, I think that's a very intriguing idea where, where, first of all, we are already hearing of collaboration uh, across multiple universities where, where, uh, uh, where uh, universities are talking about saying, hey, look, we have this really, really great course in uh, maybe astronomy. And uh, another university might have just an absolutely great course in uh, ecosystems. And they might say, hey, you know, why don't we... Uh, uh, why don't we use uh, this course from astronomy and uh, other universities can say, hey, look, I could use that course in uh, uh, ecology. So, so this way uh, I can broaden the experience for my students and, uh, and, and both of us are better off. And so, uh, so in some sense, it's uh, even within a university, you now have a global faculty in that. You're using faculty from other universities to offer a broader range of courses for your own students. So I really do believe that this is already happening across our ex-consortium universities. And, uh, and I expect that uh, we'll see more of this globalization of, uh, of creation of courses as well. Okay. Um, I know there's another couple of questions. Could, we're out of one time. 
Sorry? Give them one more. Yeah, uh, we're out of time, so please make your questions very short and your answers shorter. <laughs> she wants it. I was touched by your comment that education is a basic human right and uh, that you've made it all open source to make it freely available. I was wondering then why edX is limiting itself to certain universities, not broadening out to other content providers in other sectors in education. Um, yeah, good question, and, 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 and we struggle with it every day. And uh, you know, people have accused us of being elitist, and as if you really, really believe this is a human right and this is such a fundamental thing and disruptive, why don't you give access to everybody while you're favoring some universities? Part of our challenge is that we have limited bandwidth. And we could open up to everybody and do a lousy job at it. And so we, so we decided we will gradually increase the, uh, the, the, the partnership so that as the bandwidth increases, we'll be able to support the more partners. We work very closely with the partners, so we assign program managers to all our partners. Uh, you know, I, I like to talk to all the faculty who've taught a course. There's a number of things we do which is very different from others. Mm. It's a lot more high touch. And we just can't do that with, uh, with a thousand uh, partners. So, we, so, we, so we're growing slowly. That said, you still want to increase the partnership. So on edX, we are talking about uh, gradually increasing the membership. Uh, we are doing that. And the second thing is by making the platform available as open source, we tell anybody, anybody can do it. You can go form a consortium. And so in China, Shuetong X is a consortium of 20 universities using our platform. Japan launched JMOOC three weeks ago. France launched a France University Numerique, and they want to grow to 200 universities. You know, the five times as many as are on edX, and it's our platform. So we're making it open source. Our hope is that we can more rapidly democratize education uh, and, and not let uh, our own bandwidth and our own failing, in some sense, you know, hamper the growth of uh, uh, this platform and the growth of learning throughout the world. Okay, thank you. Final question? I was just wondering what your views on the idea of lecture, for lecturers as well as uh, universities navigating plurality of courses, so that idea of having a lot of courses from around the world on the same subjects, but also then not wanting to then end up with a limit and narrowing down of opinions that are available and thoughts, particularly in areas of like arts and humanities and some of the higher ends of astrophysics and things where people are still debating. Uh, interesting problem. Uh, right now, there are, you know, open platform, everyone and their dog can go out and put a course out there if they want, market forces will tend to pick a couple, okay? So I do think you, you if, if there is such a divergent opinion that you need to have 10 or 15, uh, that's a problem because at any given university, of course, you only get one. I don't think the people who have those divergent opinions will disappear, but they will have the ability to express themselves, whether or not the uh, number of people will uh, you know, their university will willing, be willing to support them or whatever to produce the, the, the massively online open course uh, is a big question. I, in some sense, it's much better because anyone can put a course out there who has the support of their university to do so. And so the market can go out and learn the whole divergent view. But I, I think it's an interesting area which I can't predict the future. Hey, even on edX, we have a number of courses on the same topic. So the course that I taught, Circuits and Electronics, uh, Chinghua is teaching a course in circuits and electronics, and I think there's a third university with, this, with, with a similar course. And, and on our platform, we made all our tools available, so each university can use the tools that uh, they developed or we developed and, and use that to enrich their courses. Uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would maybe have a slightly different opinion, which is that 
I think every professor, every teacher, every culture brings a different imprimatur to a course. And so I think there'll be lots of courses in, every, um, in, in a discipline. Different countries have different ways of teaching things. And then, and then learners will gravitate to uh, whoever they find uh, to, be, uh, to be suited to their style and their language and, and culture and examples and so on and so forth. And so the localization of content will be very different by country and culture. So I, I actually do believe that we will have a much broader range of courses than you might be exposed to in a single university. On that point, I think we'll call it a night. So Brian Schmidt and Aunt Agarwal, thank you very much. If you could give them a round of applause, please.